It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said that Christianity without discipleship is Christianity without Christ. Today we find ourselves in the middle of a seven-part sermon series entitled The Making of a Disciple. So far we've been talking about the tools that God uses to make disciples. Discipleship always begins with explicit faith in Jesus Christ. God uses the Bible to make disciples. For disciple is one who encounters the living God through his living word. God uses evangelism to make and build disciples because one of the best ways to stoke the fire is to share the story. Today we come to the hinge lesson of this seven-part series, and it's on the topic of prayer. And I think that we do that intentionally because prayer is at the center of all that we do and all that God uses in disciple-making. For God desires to cultivate holy habits in your life and mine, habits like prayer. And out of our prayer life flows the next three lessons, ministry, generosity, and mission. So today I want to focus our attention on one of the greatest prayer warriors in all the Bible. His name is Daniel. His story is found in the Old Testament. I invite you to take a Bible and turn to Daniel chapter 6. Once you found that sacred spot in the sacred text, then stand in this sacred place out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Daniel chapter 6, I want to read the chapter in its entirety, verses 1 to 28. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to send him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satrap tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So the administrators and the satraps went to, as a group to the king, and they said, O King Darius, live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or man in the next 30 days except to you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, O king, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about the royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or man except to you, O king, would be thrown into the lion's den? And the king answered, the decree, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of those exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the decree you put into writing. He still prays three times a day. 
When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to the king and they said to him, remember, O king, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order. They brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. The king sealed it with his own signet ring, with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating, without any entertainment being brought to him. He could not even sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? (laughs) Daniel answered, O king, live forever. My God sent his angels and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, O king. The king was overjoyed. He gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown to the lion's den along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language throughout the land, may you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God. He endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius, the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. Heavenly Father, we pray that on this day, you will help me to preach. Help me to preach. Help me to preach in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. At this time in human history, the man named Darius was the king of the Persian Empire. The Persians represented the new superpower For they had overthrown those barbaric Babylonians. King Darius, who elsewhere in scripture is called Cyrus, was the king who appointed 120 satraps. You and I would call them governors. And over those governors, there were three administrators. And Darius wanted to appoint our friend Daniel as one of those administrators. Now that's pretty amazing For starters, Daniel was not Persian. He was an exile from Judah. You may recall his story that in 586 BC, those barbaric Babylonians invaded the southern kingdom of Judah. They torched the holy city of Jerusalem. They deported many of the best and brightest, including Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
And Daniel and his friends served favorably under the reign and rule of the man named Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And Daniel had the favor of God upon him. He faithfully served a pagan god, a pagan king named Nebuchadnezzar. He faithfully served Nebuchadnezzar's successor, Belshazzar. And then following Belshazzar and the kingdom of the Babylonians, Daniel also faithfully served that pagan king named Darius or Cyrus of Persia. What does this mean? This means that God is bigger than politics. That's what it means. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. Regimes are established and regimes crumble. And God is bigger than all of that. God is bigger than politics. Always has been, always will be. God is bigger than Republicans and Democrats in Washington. God is bigger than the government of our American nation. God is bigger than the global nations. God is bigger than politics. Oh, God is bigger than office politics as well. Every office I know has some politics. People are trying to maneuver themselves and advance their cause and advance their agenda. You were deserving of the promotion, but Susan from accounting, she got it, even though you're far more qualified than Susan. But the reason she got it is because she's a pretty slick politician. Oh, my friend, I want you to know that God is bigger than office politics. God is bigger than athletic politics. Every little league I know is filled with politicians. People who say, well, the only reason that the coach's boy is playing over my boy is because the coach's boy is the coach's boy. I mean, my boy is better than him, and yet I'm getting the shaft, and, and his boy is playing just because it's the coach's son. Listen, my friend, I want you to know God is bigger than little league politics. God is bigger than church politics. Every church has it, including this one. And sometimes it rears its ugly head. An individual will try to flex his muscles because of longevity in this faith family. Or maybe somebody who has an agenda that's placed on a, per, a certain position or holds certain responsibility. Listen, my friend, I want you to know that God is bigger than church politics. God is bigger than politics. The case in point is Daniel. Daniel had the favor of God. He was a servant of the living God. And God established him. He allowed him to rise in popularity and rank, not just in the Babylonian kingdom, but also in the Persian kingdom. It's surprising to us, first and foremost, because Daniel's not a Persian. Secondly, because Daniel's old. I mean, he gets a promotion. He's not a young guy. He's not in, in his prime. In fact, by the time we get to Daniel chapter 6, Daniel is in late 70s, if not pushing 80. You will recall that when he was abducted from Jerusalem, he was a teenager, yet he'd spent uh, 60 years plus in foreign territories. I know it doesn't take very long to read from Daniel chapter 1 to Daniel chapter 6, but it is six decades that come and go. By the time you catch up with Daniel in our chapter, he is in the seventh or eighth decade of his life. He's in that moment when you think that maybe he would be overlooked or shoved aside or pushed away. Oh, but not Daniel. Why? Because God's not done with Daniel. In fact, in God's kingdom with God's economy, you never get to retire. 
You never want to retire. There may be times when you retread, but you don't retire. There may be times you get reassigned, but you don't retire because God is in charge of your life and mine. He was in charge of Daniel's life. He said, Daniel, I still have more for you to do. And so he placed him in a prominent position for his good and for his glory. Oh, my friend, I want you to know that God has not forgotten where he plopped you. God has not forgotten the tools and the ability that he's given to you. And God is gonna use you every day of your life until he takes you home to heaven. And even when he takes you home to heaven, He's still going to use you because you're going to be in his glorious presence both now and forevermore. Because you and I, we don't ever retire from God's kingdom and God's economy. Oh, this story may be a little bit surprising to us. But it's surprising because it doesn't go the normal way of life. I mean, Daniel's not a Persian. He's a foreigner. He's an exile from Judah. He's not in the prime of his life. He's in the twilight years of his life. And still, King Darius recognizes the exemplary qualities of Daniel. And King Darius is not done with Daniel either. Our text tells us that the king had appointed these governors and these administrators because he did not want to suffer loss. He didn't want to suffer loss of revenue or loss of territory. So the governors were in place to make sure that the king got his revenue and the king uh, had a military strong enough to defend the territory. And the text says that Darius wanted to appoint Daniel, not just as one of the three administrators, but the lead administrator. In other words, he wanted to appoint him as the prime minister of Persia. (laughs) There's nothing like a promotion in the office to spark office jealousy, right? Right? Somebody gets a promotion, everybody says, hey, that guy shouldn't have got it, I should have got it. That's what happens here. The 120 governors and the other two administrators, they say, what in the world? This guy's not even one of us. He's a Persian and he's old. Why in the world is he getting the promotion? We're going to take that cat down. So look for every way possible. They examine him. They try to set traps for him. They look at all the books. They look at all the receipts that he turns in. And they come to this conclusion. They cannot find anything wrong with Daniel, not in corruption or neglect. What does that mean? It means that uh, Daniel never uh, skimmed off the top. He never accepted a bribe. Stop and think about that. He was a politician who did not accept a bribe. He was an honest politician. Daniel was honest. He was not corrupt. And he wasn't negligent. He actually worked. He came to work on time and he he worked hard, had a great work ethic. They could not find anything wrong with him. They looked under every rock, no stone unturned. They looked for anything and everything to get Daniel, to trap him, to indict him. Couldn't find anything. Not that Daniel's perfect, but Daniel was not corrupt. He was not negligent. Eventually they said, you know, the only way we can catch this guy in a compromise is if we set up a trap so he has to have a compromise between the law of the land versus the law of his Lord. Because the worst thing we can find about Daniel is that he prays too much. Oh, my friend, let it be said of you and me that the worst thing the watching pagan world can say of us is that we are too committed to Christ. 
That's what they say of Daniel. Daniel's too holy. Daniel is too committed to his God. Daniel is too committed. He prays too much. He prays three times a day, morning, noon, and night. He goes home and he prays. He goes to the second floor. He opens the windows. He faces the east, uh, facing Jerusalem. He kneels down and he prays. And he constantly prays. He He does this religiously. He does this every single day. It's a habit that Daniel has formed. And the only way that we can trap him is to put him in a compromising position between the law of the land versus the law of his Lord. One governor was intimidated by Darius. Ten of the governors, still a bit scared, but they thought to themselves, if all of us go together, we just might be able to manipulate the king. So all of the administrators and all of the governors, satraps, they gained an audience with King Darius. Oh, King Darius, live forever. You're awesome. Greatest thing since sliced bread. We think that you need to make a decree and a law, codify it, put it in the policy and procedure manual of the country. We think what you need to do is you need to say that if anyone prays to any God or another man over the next 30 days except you, O king, If a man prays to someone other than you, that individual needs to be thrown to the lion's den. We think you need to put this in the law as the Medes and Persians do, which cannot be repealed and cannot be altered. Now to a self-absorbed, egotistical maniac like King Darius, this sounded like a swell idea. After all, everybody in antiquity who was a king thought himself to be a god. And if not a god, then it's certainly appointed by God. So he thought to himself, this is a great idea. I'll do this. And so he makes the law. He codifies it. He puts it in the law of the Medes and the Persians. And over the next 30 days, no one can pray to anyone else other than King Darius. And any person who prays to any other God or man other than the king will be abducted and thrown into the lion's den. When Daniel hears of this, he goes to his living quarters upstairs to the open windows he kneels towards the east and he prays asking God for help he did the same thing on this day that he had done for many days I've been told that a crisis will not produce character but a crisis will reveal character just stop and think about that a crisis in your life It probably won't necessarily produce character, but it will reveal character in your life. And so Daniel prays because that's what he had always done. Daniel prays and he asks God for help. Help me as I try to navigate in this pagan culture, in this pagan country, working with this pagan boss. Please try to help me. Help me to stand firm for you. Help me not to cave in and to buckle. Help me, oh God. I'm sure that if Daniel confided in any of his friends, there would have been at least one friend who would have said, listen, just close the window doors. Don't open them up. Don't let anybody see you pray. Someone else probably would have said, just pray quietly. I mean, you can stand there and pray and nobody knows it. So just just pray to yourself. Don't do it out loud. 
Don't, don't do it in front of anybody. Don't pray in front of open windows. And somebody else probably would have had the wise idea. And I suspect this is probably a Baptist. Uh, somebody would have had the wise idea. Hey, just tell God you'll see him in 30 days. Just stop praying. Just say, God, I'll talk back with you at the end of September. I mean, just give me 30 days, all right? I'm just going to stop just to kind of go along and get along. But Daniel, if he had sought the counsel of any of his friends, he wasn't going to do any of that. No, he went back to his living quarters, went upstairs, opened the windows, knelt down, and he prayed, asking for God's help. As I read that, I, uh, I wonder to myself, what gave Daniel this much commitment? Because everywhere uh, people looked at him, they found faithfulness. They found it in his public life and his private life. They, they found it uh, in the boardroom and the bedroom. They, they found faithfulness. Uh, he was a constant Carl. I mean, he was faithful in everything that he did, every avenue. There didn't seem to be any skeleton in his closet. And my question is, where did all this come from? Where did this faithfulness derive its origin? Where did it come from? Once again, for those of you who know the story of Daniel, you'll re remember that in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, we read the words that Daniel was resolved not to defile himself before the Lord. Now, in the opening chapter, in that specific scenario, Daniel's a teenager. He's been abducted from Jerusalem. He's been taken to a foreign land. He's in the custody of King Nebuchadnezzar. He and his friends and uh, other individuals that he probably did not know, but all of them from the country of Judah. And they were inmates and they were told to eat from the king's table. And Daniel began to look over the king's table, all the food and the drink that was there. And he said to himself, I cannot eat this food because this food would make Daniel ceremonially unclean. And so he said to himself, listen, I, I can't eat this steak that's rare because the barbaric Babylonians like their steaks rare. And it had blood that was running in it. It had life-giving blood. And some of the steak was food that had been partially sacrificed to uh, false gods and goddesses. And so Daniel says, I can't eat this. I can't eat this food because it will, it will make me unclean before my God and I do not want to be unclean. So Daniel resolved not to defile himself before the Lord. Daniel said to his supervisor, you just give me Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Just give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. And the supervisor said, I'm not going to do that. The king will have my head. You'll waste away to nothing. And Daniel said, put it to a 10-day test. After a week and a half, you examine us. After eating only vegetables and drinking only water, you see if we're not better nourished than all of our other friends and individuals from the southern kingdom of Judah. And after a week and a half, sure enough, these guys passed the exam with flying colors. They were stronger, healthier, better nourished than all their other individuals who had taken anything from the king's table. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that God prefers a vegetarian diet than a diet of red meat? I don't know, but this much I do know, it does mean that God honors those who honor him. Daniel was resolved not to defile himself before the Lord. That word resolved means he said it on his heart. He said it on his heart that he would not defile himself before God. He put convictions in his life. Convictions were placed in his life. They acted as guardrails in his life. I've been told that a conviction is not necessarily something you hold, but it's something that holds you. This past summer, when I had the privilege of being with these students at camp, I made the statement for them 
that today they need to set it upon their heart that they will not defile themselves before the Lord. What does that mean? It means students don't wait to in the backseat of the car on Friday night to then decide how far is too far. Because if you wait to the moment of temptation, it's too late. The battle's already over. Today, set it upon your heart not to defile yourself before the Lord. Don't wait till you're standing under the bleachers at a football game on Friday night to then decide what you're going to do with your body and what pill or needle you're going to put into your body. If you wait to that moment on Friday night, it is far too late. The battle's already over. Today, set it upon your heart that you will not defile yourself before the Lord. What's true for our students is also true for all adults. Adults, do not wait till that flirtatious glance from someone other than your spouse. Don't wait for that awkward, prolonged hug for you to then decide the sacred depth of your marriage vows. If you wait till then to determine your level of commitment, it's too late. The battle's already over. Today, set it upon your heart not to defile yourself before the Lord. Friend, don't wait till the prospect of foul language crosses your lips. Don't, don't wait till the opportunity of gossip where you really can slander somebody's reputation. Don't wait till you're exhausted and tired and seated at night in front of your computer screen with the website being only one click away for you to then decide, what am I gonna do in these situations? If you wait for the moment of temptation to then decide the level of your commitment, it is far too late. The battle's already over. Today, set on your heart that you will not defile yourself before God. That's what Daniel did. How in the world could Daniel be faithful to God in his seventh and eighth decade? I'll tell you, my friend, because early in life, when he was 13 years old, he said, I will not defile myself before God if I'm not going to defile myself by what I eat. I'm not going to defile myself in the bedroom. I'm not going to defile myself um, in any other aspect in holiness or purity or in my ethics or the way I uh, uh, do my workplace, uh, marketplace ventures. I'm not going to defile myself before God. The way Daniel could do this in his seventh or eighth decade, it's the same way he did it when he was 13 years old. He did not wait for temptation to come to then decide how committed he was going to be to Christ. He set it upon his heart not to defile himself before the Lord. Some of you this morning, before you walk out of here, that's what you need to do. You need to say, God, I set it upon my heart that I will not defile you. I will not bring shame to your name in my conduct, in my vocabulary, in what I do, even in my attitudes. I will not I will not bring shame to the holy name of God. So I've set it upon my heart not to defile myself before the Lord. There's another reason why I think Daniel's able to withstand this assault against him. It's because in verse 13, there's a powerful five-letter word, still. When those who falsely accuse him see that he's praying and they go back to the king one of those governors says to the king, that Daniel, who's an exile from Judah, according to verse 13, he still prays three times a day. It's not that he started praying three times a day, but he still prays three times a day. Daniel did not wait to that moment to then decide to try to be faithful to the Lord. No, he developed holy habits. He developed healthy habits unto God. He prayed even when he didn't feel like it. He prayed every day, not once, twice, but three times. He was still praying three times a day. My friend, Daniel understood 
that there was no way he could make it 30 days without praying to God. In fact, there was no way he could make it 30 minutes without praying to God. There's no way he could make it without praying to God. Why? Because he had developed healthy habits. Here's a harsh reality question. If for some reason, friend, you could not pray for 30 days, how would that change your daily activity? Would it really change your schedule all that much? Because most of us may go days, weeks, in fact, without really praying. Oh, we may pray, God, help me get that grocery, or help me get that parking lot at the grocery store, or God, help me get this, or help me survive that, or help me make a good grade on this. But I'm talking about real genuine prayer, where you fall on your face, fall on your knees, you ask God for help, and you're really praying. Friend, if you could not pray for 30 days, would it really alter your daily schedule? The sobering reality is that far too many of us, we wouldn't be Uh, that much affected by it. It wouldn't be that much different. Our daily schedule would be pretty much the same. Daniel said, listen, I can't go 30 minutes, let alone 30 days. I'm going to pray. Why? Because he developed healthy habits, holy habits. So he prayed. I'm sure he read scripture. I'm sure he shared his faith. I'm sure he worshiped all those things, developing holy habits. I've had people that tell me, you know, um, I just don't feel like praying. Friend, where did anybody teach you that you just need to do what you feel like doing, right? People who tell me, you know, I would read the Bible, but I just don't feel like it. Hey, friend, who taught you and told you that you just need to do what you feel like doing? You know, I would share the gospel, but I just don't really feel like it. Okay, friend, who taught you and told you that all you got to do is just do what you feel like doing? And somebody says, you know, I would come to church, but I just don't feel like it. Okay, buddy. Hey, who taught you and told you that you only have to do what you feel like doing? Sometimes we develop habits and not all habits are bad habits. Some habits are good habits. And I got to be honest with you this morning. I woke up this morning and I didn't feel like brushing my teeth. But I did. And believe me that if you get this close to me this morning, you'll be thankful that I did. Because not all habits are bad habits. Some habits are healthy habits. And in fact, some healthy, holy habits are actually helpful to other people. I know some of you right now are thinking to yourself, did I brush my teeth this morning? (gasps) Listen, I've talked to some of y'all already and you did not brush your teeth, okay? Brother, you just need a tic-tac, okay? Can you help a brother out, you know? I mean, just a piece of gum. Come on, come on, do something, right? Right? Some habits are extremely healthy. Listen, I brush my teeth, I put on deodorant, I shower whether I feel like it or not. To which you say, praise Jesus, right? You get close enough, you say, thank you for brushing your teeth and thanks for putting on deodorant. We're really glad you took a shower today, right? You get close enough. And by the way, friends, if you didn't do those things, just talk to me from a distance today, please. Because some habits are good habits, healthy habits that help set the boundaries for other individuals as well. So what do holy habits do? They, they set the guardrails. Because sometimes in life, if you're not careful, things will happen to you and you'll want to get very frustrated or you'll want to grow very bitter. But the holy habits, they set guardrails, right? What did Daniel say? I've set it on my heart not to defile myself before God. I am not going to, I'm not going to bring shame to the holy name of the Lord. I'm not going to wait for temptation to come from in, then to decide how to handle that temptation. No, Daniel 
had those holy guardrails, those holy habits. And it started with prayer. I don't think the ink had dried on the parchment when some of those governors made their way to Daniel's house. They knew that he always went upstairs to the second floor because in those days, those buildings only had windows on second floors. No building, no house in those days had a window on the first floor. And so they became uh, peeping toms. So they climbed trees and they looked in the window, hoping to find Daniel praying. As soon as they did, they snatched him up. They took him before King Darius. They said, this exile from Judah, who you like a lot, defies your name. He still prays. Now, remember, you codified this thing. It's in the law of the Medes and Persians. It cannot be altered. It cannot be changed. He must be thrown into the lion's den. And all day long, King Darius tried to find a loophole, and no loophole could be found. And that night, he signed the execution papers. And before Daniel was carted off to the lion's den, what did King Darius say? May your king... May your God, whom you serve continually, be able to rescue you. Darius is a pagan guy. He's not a God-fearer, yet he saw in the life of Daniel a life that was committed unto God. And so he says in this moment, may your God, whom you continually serve, may he rescue you. King Darius ordered for the stone to be placed in front of the lion's den. He sealed it with his ring and the ring of the nobles. And the author tells us that King Darius was taken back to his palace. He did not eat. He refused entertainment that night. Didn't watch one thing on Netflix. Couldn't even sleep. He tossed and turned. At the first light of the break of day, he put on his royal slippers and his bathrobe. And the 62-year-old king made a mad dash to the lion's den. I got to be honest with you. When the author tells me all those details, I think to myself, who cares? I don't care what the king is doing. I want to know what's going on in Daniel's den, right? Maybe that's just me, but I don't really care that he didn't eat or watch Netflix or couldn't sleep. Yet he gets down to the lion's den and he says with an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God. Let's stop right there, okay? What a great epitaph. Daniel, servant of the living God. May we be known by a watching pagan world that we are servants of the living God. May people not say, Davin, who is the preacher? Davin, who is the pastor at First Pelham? Davin, who's a University of Kentucky basketball fan? All that doesn't mean much. But Davin, who is servant of the living God, let the watching world know that about me. Let the watching world know that about you. And how do they know that? They know that because of our healthy, holy habits that we cultivate and how we live for the Lord. And we say we're not going to bring shame to the name of God. May we be individuals that the watching pagan world has to say of us. The worst thing we can say about them is that they just pray to Jesus too much. May they say, Daniel, servant of the living God, has the God you continually serve been able to rescue you? The next word of the text says Daniel answered. Really what he said after that doesn't matter. The fact that Daniel answered is a major miracle, don't you think? I mean, he spent the night with raging, roaring lions. The fact that he can answer the next morning, that's a major miracle. Daniel answered, hey, we're having a party down here. Because the God that I serve sent an angel. And the angel shut the mouths of the lions. 
Because king, I told you, I was innocent in his sight. And I haven't done anything against you either. And my God showed up. And my God did the amazing thing. And I guess that those angels also clipped the toenails of those lions too. Because they could have mauled Daniel to death. But regardless, Daniel is fine. I thought you'd get excited about that. Maybe you've heard the story before. Maybe that's what it is. Daniel survived a night with roaring lions. What happens in that moment is that the eschatological world invades the current world. Because that eschatological world is described in these ways. That that when the eschatological, when when, when Jesus comes and establishes his, his kingdom, both now and forevermore, it'll be a place so peaceful, so tranquil, that the prophets say that the child can put his hand into the mouth of a viper and not be hurt. Or that the lion can lie down with a lamb or a wolf. It's a picture of peace. And sometimes God permits the eschatological world to invade our world. And heaven came down and glory filled my soul. When at the cross, the Savior made me whole. My sins were rolled away. My night was turned to day. Sometimes heaven comes down and glory's got to fill my soul. Can you imagine being in that den like Daniel? Can you imagine being there and God showing up and shutting up the mouths of the lions? Can you imagine when the eschatological world invades our world, there is peace. Peace, there is joy. Daniel says, we're having a party going on down here. It's all good. And the king orders for Daniel to be lifted up out of the lion's den. Not a scratch is on him. Not a wound on his face or his hand, his arms or his legs. (laughs) And the king is overjoyed. And then the king does something that I got to be honest, I love. I love what the king does next. King Darius gathers up all those who falsely accuse the servant of God. And the king threw them into the lion's den with their wives and their children. I gotta be honest, I like that. Nobody else does, apparently, but I do. I'm like, go God, that's right. Stand up for your servant, that's right. Fight his battle for him. And God shows up in a mighty way. And if anybody ever wonders... Were those lions timid? Was it just like a bunch of stuffed animals down there? The answer is no. They were ferocious. How do you know? Because when the adversaries of Daniel were thrown into the lion's den, before their bodies ever hit the floor of the den, these lions broke every bone and devoured every bit of flesh. Darius then issues a decree. The decree which says every person, every man, woman, boy, and child, every nationality, every language that's in the Persian Empire must acknowledge the God of Daniel. For the God of Daniel has a kingdom that will not end. The God of Daniel has dominion and authority that is unending. The God of Daniel rescues and saves. The God of Daniel personally came down and lifted Daniel out of the lion's den. The God of Daniel must be reverenced and must be worshipped. And Daniel prospered under the king Darius, also known as Cyrus the Persian. Wow. Y'all have heard this story. Because you didn't respond the way I thought you would respond. This is a stinking amazing story, don't you think? This is amazing, right? I got to sit down here in a minute. But before I do, 
The hero of this story is not Daniel. The hero of this story is God. And sometimes we get confused. We think somehow that Daniel's the hero. Daniel's not the hero. God is the hero. Sometimes we look at a story like this and we say, where do I find myself in this story? You're not in the story. This is not your story. This is God's story through Daniel, right? So this is God's story. God is the hero. What does Daniel do? Daniel is just a precursor of Christ. He just points us to Jesus. Daniel was falsely accused. Jesus will be falsely accused. Uh, Daniel was thrown into certain demise. Jesus will be thrown in certain demise. A stone was rolled over the grave of Daniel. So a stone will be rolled over the grave of Jesus. God showed up and rescued Daniel. And on the third day, God will show up and raise Jesus from the dead. Only thing Daniel does is he points people to Jesus. If you see yourself in this story, the one thing that you and I have to do is we've got to live our life and speak our life and die our lives pointing people to Jesus. That's the reason we're here. That's the only reason that we, have, that we exist. We exist to point people to Christ. That's what Daniel does. But make no mistake about it. The hero of the story is not Daniel. The hero is God. Let me say one more thing. There is nowhere in this story where Daniel is promised deliverance. Nowhere. Nowhere in the story where where Daniel was promised deliverance. Yet he says, I'm going to be faithful unto my God, regardless what happens. So don't walk away from this story saying to yourself, God will always deliver me from my lion's den. No, God may not deliver you from it, but he will deliver you through it. God did not deliver Noah from the worldwide flood. He delivered him through the worldwide flood. God did not deliver Abraham from Mount Moriah. He delivered him through Mount Moriah. God did not deliver Joseph from the pit, but he delivered him through the pit and placed him in the palace. God did not deliver the Israelites from the Red Sea. He delivered them through the Red Sea. God did not deliver Jonah from the belly of the fish, but he delivered him through the belly of the fish. God did not deliver Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace, but through the fiery furnace. God did not deliver the apostle Peter from him imprisonment but through imprisonment God did not deliver the apostle Paul from being shipwrecked but he delivered him through being shipwrecked and God certainly did not deliver Jesus from the cross but he delivered him through the cross you may not be delivered from your cancer but you will be delivered through your cancer may not be delivered from your heartache but delivered through your heartache may not be delivered from your sadness but will be delivered through your sadness because God delivers his children one thing we can know is that our God is in control of all things and he gives us certain holy habits that we cultivate. And in the cultivation of those holy habits, we become disciples of Christ. So we pray. So we read the scripture. So we evangelize. So we go to church. These are guardrails in our life. This morning, church, let us pray unto God. In the moment of promotion, pray. In the moment of persecution, pray. In the moment of distress, pray. Don't just start praying. Still pray. Let's pray unto God. Pray unto God. Pray unto God. Pray unto God. Pray to the holy God. Our Father, we bow before you in prayer because we know it's a healthy habit. Some of us may not even feel like praying, but oh God, help us to pray today. And through prayer where you draw us unto yourself, may we respond in obedience. If you're calling us to rededicate our life, may we obey. If you're calling us to trust you, 
may we trust you. If you're calling us to lay down a sin that so easily entangles today, let us lay down that sin that so easily entangles. Oh God, if we've hurt somebody today and you bring it to our mind in prayer, help us to rectify and reconcile that relationship today. Oh Father, use prayer to make your disciples in this place. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.